Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we approach Scripture with human presuppositions, we inevitably and systematically mishear the topic of a given book, dislocating God's agency in the story and silencing His voice in our ears. If your premise is you, The tale distorts and twists itself into a parable about you. If your premise is your king, in the end just another version of you, then the story becomes a lie about the importance of your human city and its people. However, if your premise is submission to the story's premise, No matter how painful that premise is, and no matter where it may lead, then there is hope that the Gospels' escape into the wilderness in Matthew could also mean freedom for you. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 423 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It's providential that we have come to the end of Matthew at the beginning of the Lenten season, in the middle of an Eastern Orthodox war in Europe. And that's what it is, friends. It's an Orthodox war. If you haven't figured out from the title of last week's podcast, the result of locking up the gospel inside a box with a gold cover and masking it with jewels and not reading it, if you haven't figured out the result of that discipline, now you know it's all over the news. And as I said, it's providential that we come to the proclamation of the resurrection in Matthew at the start of Lent during this godless and hideous Orthodox war, because the teaching of Matthew is precisely the teaching of the resurrection that we refuse to accept, that it is out of the rubble that the Lord escapes triumphantly to carry the good news to the nations. It is out of the rubble of our destruction, that he escapes the tomb to preach the good news to the nations. We want to think of the resurrection as something we celebrate because we've built something in which to celebrate. And Matthew is telling us it's only after you and the things you have built have been destroyed 
that the gospel message can finally escape your control and go out among the nations to liberate all from the tyranny of the things that human beings create with the work of their own hands. That is how the gospel liberates us from tyranny. That is how the gospel gives hope in the midst of oppression and war. And that is how the gospel ultimately saves us from ourselves. Those who aren't educated in Scripture think that the teaching comes from which side you're going to choose, which side you're rooting for, which side is going to win, which side is going to triumph, which side is going to get their freedom, which side is going to be able to call the shots, ultimately. And this is a very difficult situation for me because I'm talking every day to people in Ukraine who are suffering terribly. And... I talk to people also who are suffering in the United States. I talk to people who are disabled. I talk to people who are facing huge difficulties. And when I see chapter 27, where the ultimate teaching comes from one who is killed by the government, an invading government, an occupying government, only with his unjust death comes the teaching when I read this section, I see that Jesus' work ended in 27, but there's one chapter left for the human beings to get it. Because if we don't get it, the teaching is lost. The judgment is still there, but any hope for grace is lost because that teaching that was so hard fought by Jesus, in Jesus holding to his Father's teaching by subjugating his own will as a slave to his father. Only from there does the teaching come. And so in 28, Jesus is dead and gone. And nobody understands how or why he could be gone, but it's only from this, as you keep repeating, Father, rubble can the teaching come. It requires rubble. Human beings say, why does it take all this wickedness for us to finally understand what we're supposed to understand? And I keep saying, I don't know, but it's a fact that Scripture recognized a long time ago, and the Lord knew from the very moment that he turned tohu vabohu into some kind of world with eventually human beings walking around on it. Rich, you talked about an occupying government and invading government. And we've talked about the Palestinian-Israeli crisis on this podcast more than once and about the ultimate stand that I've taken that we have to accept these tragedies as the Lord's judgment. Because if we take a stand on one side or the other, we're taking a stand against the Lord's prophet. Remember that in the book of Jeremiah, it is not as academics and scholars like to say in their books the story of the siege of Jerusalem. This is a misreading of the text. It is the siege of Jeremiah. This is what we are trying to explain on this program when we talk about cathedrals and bombs. It is the teaching of Jesus Christ that is under attack, not the government of Ukraine. It is the gospel teaching that is under attack. A teaching that says simply and plainly, you brood of vipers, in the gospel of Luke, 
which we hope to hear shortly on this podcast. If your neighbor doesn't have a coat and you have an extra one, give him your coat. Very straightforward adaptation of the Matthean critique against the scribes and Pharisees, now addressed to the entire church in Luke, as you'll hear soon on this program. You brood of vipers. Nowhere in the critique that John the Baptist levels against the church in either gospel is there a discussion of the finer points of real politic and political strategy and social identity. That is why it is Jeremiah who is under siege from the inside and from the outside, because nobody wants to hear the bitter pill of the gospel. Except Jesus Christ, who was executed. That's why all these readings of Scripture that try to paint the Jews as the bad guys, or the Romans as the bad guys, or the good guys, or whatever, all misunderstand the text. La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God in Scripture. He is the king. Everybody else is an antagonist in the story. There are no good guys. There are no heroes. There is no king but God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody else is a problem in the story. This is a difficult teaching. It's problematic. It's so impossible to promote anything under the burden and the heavy pressure of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I promise you that the moms of Ukraine at this hour and the moms of Russia are begging for somebody to proclaim the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which comes part and parcel with the proclamation of the resurrection, which is not about human victory and happiness. It's about the liberation from human bondage through the suppression of human tyranny so that the gospel can be set free. So let's get down to business, Dr. Benton. Now, after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So with this liberation of the gospel, Mary Magdalene and Mary are still confused. They came to look at the tomb. They were looking at Jesus when he was being crucified. They're looking at the tomb, which they believe Jesus is going to be in. They're still looking and considering and wondering and standing afar off. Perhaps there's a hope. We don't know. We can't psychoanalyze Mary and the other Mary. We just know that this Mary of the tower and this other Mary are bitter, as their name means. So they come and they're looking for this liberation, but I don't know what kind of liberation they're looking for. They're likely looking for the normal human liberation of, is there any hope left? Is there anything left? Let's go look through the rubble and see if we can find anybody alive in here. Anybody alive in here. In fact, there is nobody alive in here. There's only a word that's alive in here. There's only a teaching that's alive in here, and there's only a teaching that's going to come out. And Father, when you mentioned Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been causing me physical pain this week because 
What are you supposed to say to a country under siege? You know what Jeremiah says to Jerusalem under siege? Lay down your weapons and go into exile. I told my wife this week, I said, that's not a difficult message. That's literally an impossible message. Literally impossible. It's literally impossible to believe that that is what God could want. And here, it doesn't surprise me that Mary and the other Mary would find it literally impossible to believe that something is happening when there's a body on the scene, literally dead, literally gone, literally no life left, literally no breath left, no wind for this word to ride on, nothing. How can there be a word when there is no breath? But they think the breath is the breath of the human being. They don't understand that the human being only has breath because God put the wind into the mud so that there could be a human being. And here they come to empty mud, and they're going to find a wind with a teaching, with a word that's riding on it. This image, Richard, of the two Marys coming to stare into the grave in the context of what we've been saying about mothers in times of war, in the context of the central metaphor of motherhood in Scripture as the expression of God's mercy, it's just too painful to hear in this context. It's too painful to hear in this context. You understand now the bitter irony of the name Mary, meaning bitterness. The only hope, to the extent that these two women represent communities, that Mary Magdalene represents the church in the Gospel of Matthew, the only hope, as they stare into the grave, is for them to do what the prophet Isaiah proclaims, that young women should do in the face of the Lord's judgment against Jerusalem. Give birth. And that is what we are about to hear. We are about to hear how God the Father, once again, by the power of his Spirit, is going to intervene in the Gospel of Matthew the way he intervened repeatedly in the book of Genesis. He's going to intervene in order to create life, to be merciful for the sake of his people, to establish a remnant for the continuation of life, for the continuation of his seed, which is interconnected with the seed of his instruction which is already out among the nations. It's kind of a joke in Matthew that they're trying to lock Jesus up because the gospel has already reached the nations. So these names are ironic, and these characters are, in a way, complex. They function in both directions. There are no heroes in the story. There's a tragic quality to the Marys here, staring into the abyss of the grave. But there's hope because God 
seated in his throne in the heavens, he who is the only king still has the power to intervene and to send his apostle to proclaim the good news. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And Father Paul argues in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that the angel here in the Gospel of Matthew, the messenger of the king who is seated in the heavens, is none other than a metaphor for the Apostle Paul and the seismic earthquake of his preaching, which is the proclamation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, a.k.a. the gospel to the nations, despite the best effort of everyone to build a box, enshrine the Torah inside a gold cover, and lock it away behind your rituals so that no one will ever hear it, but everyone will be very impressed with your mystical buildings and very impressed with your institutions. Sound familiar? Not working out here because Paul intervened and now the message is out. So very quickly, the bitterness of the Marys is going to be turned on its head. The irony of this image is so funny because so many people understand it as this glorious image. But let's break this down for a minute, Father. So we have this angel who comes in a theophany. We talked about the earthquake before that we had during the crucifixion. This is a representation of God telling the heavens and the earth to testify to his word. We have this herald. I'm going to use the word herald for angel because that's the one who precedes the king that blows the trumpets. And he comes down from the heavens themselves. Don't forget Matthew, like we said since chapter one, is all about the inauguration of the kingdom. So finally we have the herald coming, declaring the kingdom, the reign of the new king. And he says, behold, and there's nobody there. Nobody there. Nothing empty tomb. That's like saying, behold your king, and here's an empty throne, huh? Or behold your king, and here's a guy crucified on a throne. What? This is an absurd moment, okay? Don't get excited. This is crazy. These Marys and their bitterness want some kind of hope, and you say, behold the void of the tomb. I hope you're happy now. There is no hope in this tomb. There is no hope in this life, in this death. There's no hope. Look, you're looking for a body in the rubble. Guess what? No bodies. Nothing. Nothing to hope for. There's nothing. This is the true nihilism that this book brings us to. The kingdom is empty. The kingdom is nothing. There's nothing there. And the Lord calls the heavens and the earth to testify that there's nothing. Why? Because the women are theorisan. They're looking. They're not listening. The wind is going to carry the word because it's only the word that can give them hope. 
It's interesting you mentioned this nihilism, Richard, because I was recently explaining to someone that it only feels like nihilism because modern Christians are very humanistic. Modern Christians project themselves into the God they worship. When a modern Christian of any denomination or church talks about Jesus or talks about God, they are depicting in their mind a projection of the best version of the human being. That's why they can't stand Isaiah and the arrogance of God. That's why they can't handle God being violent or cruel or playing the evil character in the Old Testament, because that's not how human beings are supposed to act. They make the very nasty mistake of confusing the human being with God. They're all Hellenists. They're all neo-pagans. That's the point, friends. Scripture is eliminating and annihilating and wiping out, as in read Deuteronomy chapter 32. It is exterminating any and all depictions in your mind of the God or gods you project. So it feels to you like nihilism, because your mercy is a fake mercy. Your love is an empty love. Your worship is a false worship. Your God is a false God, because it's a projection of the human ego. It liberates you from your own tyranny. The empty tomb, the empty temple, the destroyed temple, the empty throne is hopeful only when you realize it was a gigantic mistake to ever put any hope or trust in any of those things. That is how the gospel liberates you. And that is how the liberation of the gospel within the story of the Gospel of Matthew, sets you free. Because if you're no longer beholden to any human power, beginning with the tyranny of your own identity and your own ego, then you are set free to answer only to the voice of God in the wilderness, which is where the next Gospel begins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness then you are set free to be a sheep in his flock, answering to no one but him. That is when we get down to business, and that is when you can stand before emperors and princes and governors, and no one can make you flinch. That is when you can have the courage of Jesus before Pilate, because you don't answer to them. Then you're free, and it is a big deal this business of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the freedom in the gospel that Paul preaches. And a bunch of people are dying right now because everybody is a slave to a false god or gods. And it's no joke. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow this is, of course, playing on the Son of Man imagery from throughout the Gospel of Matthew and reiterating the fact that Jesus, the suffering servant, 
is now the glorified Son of Man that Matthew has been referring to throughout the story. The kingdom is at hand. These are the tokens. These are the images. These are the signs that the king is here. This is how Jesus already predicted, already warned that these are the signs that you're going to see and you're going to know that this is the kingdom. So, the women should be all ready for a kingdom now if they've been listening. And I hope they're not disappointed by what they find. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They're afraid of Paul. They're afraid of the one who brings the proclamation of the gospel, and they were baptized. Are you kidding me? Now we're getting down to business. This is the good news. This is the hope. The guards no longer answer to Caesar. They now answer to the Son of Man, who is no Caesar. Because between Jesus Christ and God the Father is an empty chair that used to be occupied by Caesar. And this is what amazes me about the hubris of human identity. If Jesus Christ will not sit on that chair, why is everyone else clamoring to sit there? This is the hope. There is one king, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is enthroned in the heavens and the earth is his footstool, and no human being may sit on the seat of authority before him. Now, we've explained over and over again how there are positions of authority in human society, and we've explained how the gospel co-opts those positions in Roman society so that they become the functional presence of God the Father through his gospel, because you can't have an abstraction. You need authority for society to function. You need authority for the gospel to become functional in everyday life. But that authority, which is made flesh and is exercised by human authorities, is not the authority of the human being. It's the authority of God through his written word. This is foundational. This is literally the crux, the cross of the matter. The guards should be afraid because the kingdom of this world in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom that they serve, is coming to an end. These guards have been trained to fear this kind of authority that comes to them. However, they're not listening, they're only looking. Just by seeing the authority of the kingdom being inaugurated is enough for them to be dead with fear, paralyzed with fear, and are they able to hear after this? This is the question. We'll never know. Matthew never lets us know what ends up happening to these guards. We hear a little bit more about the Marys, but we don't know what happens to the guards. Are they struck by such fear that they can't hear 
And therefore, they're just going to continue to be stuck in wondering if this is the greater power, you know, who's going to win in a wrestling match, Pilot or Jesus. It's not about arm wrestling. It's not about who's strong. Is this angel comparable to God, like Pilate is comparable to Caesar? This is all lost time. This is vain talk. We'll see who is able to finally listen, because chapter 28 is the last opportunity to hear this word. After chapter 28, Jesus does not speak. Well, we have that one little bit in Acts. But for Matthew, this is the end. This is the last time that Jesus speaks. It's your last time to hear his word. The soldiers won't be around to hear that word at the very end of 28, but they heard perhaps what was spoken before. They have a chance. Maybe the Marys will say something. We don't know. We can come up with all the fan fiction we want. But we know that the fear of this herald is enough for them to be like they were dead. We'll see if, in spite of that fear, if they're able to continue to teach this message, just like we're hoping the Marys are able to teach this message. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.